Hey everybody. During our hiatus between seasons, as we get to work on season four, we're reposting our season two series from 2017, Seeing White. A lot of you have heard it, but we know some of you have found the show more recently, maybe through our men's season, and have not yet gone back to hear Seeing White. The response to this series has been extraordinary and ongoing, so we're just re-upping it into the feed. If you've already listened, you can always listen again or just tell some friends about it. Enjoy. When I was a little kid growing up in Mankato, Minnesota, yes, we did. We played cowboys and Indians, at least a few times. One year when I was nine or ten, my mom and dad gave me an Indian brave getup for my birthday. There was some sort of headband with a feather at the back, faux buckskin pants with fringe, and the best part, a bow and arrows with those little suction cups on the end. Back then, we're talking around 1970, my parents hadn't had their consciousness raised about that sort of cultural appropriation. Maybe only because I had the outfit, I got my little brother and a couple friends. For the cowboys, we had guns with suction cup darts, and we ran around the yard shooting at each other. Tim Tyson is another white guy, roughly my age, you may have heard him in a couple of our recent episodes. Tim grew up in North Carolina. So as a white Southerner, you know, we played Civil War the way the people played Cowboys and Indians or House. We played Civil War, and of course nobody was a Yankee. All the Yankees were imaginary. We never made anybody be a Yankee, for heaven's sake. And then, you know, I thought of the world somewhat as uh, up north and here. So there were sort of two places in America for me. It was, there was up north and here. I'm John Bewin, it's Seen on Radio. Welcome to part six of our ongoing series, Seeing White. We're exploring what's up with white people and the idea of whiteness how it got constructed, and how it works in the world. So far in the series, we've mostly talked about the Americans who call ourselves white as more or less one group. For example, we presented slavery as a cornerstone of the national story, without emphasizing that it was practiced to very different degrees in different parts of the country, or that Americans, mostly white, slaughtered one another, in part over the right to enslave people. The actual shooting stopped in 1865. This time we talk north and south, but this is not a dive into history like the last few episodes. We're not going to retell the Civil War or go deep into the history of anything. Instead, a different sort of exploration. There's something I've noticed for a long time, even before I moved to the south 16 years ago. Something about the way people like me White Northerners, especially educated, progressive types, the way we view white Southerners. Right. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, when I was working on that doc we played for the last episode, Little War on the Prairie, I sat down with some friends here in North Carolina, white Southerners who've spent serious time up north amongst white Yankees. I wanted to know if their experiences were what I'd imagined they would be. In a way, you develop a thick skin 
growing up in the world as a Southerner um, because you you have to be as as Obama has had to be you know a hundred times smarter uh, just to break even and you have to be so articulate and so intelligent and so well read as a Southerner to vindicate and justify yourself in the world in the world of the North. That's Alan Gerganus, the novelist. His books include Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All and a collection of stories called White People. My mother grew up in Illinois and my father grew up in North Carolina, so I'm a product of a mixed marriage. Uh, So I've had access to both sides of this particular fence. Alan grew up in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and now lives in the town of Hillsboro. Along the way, he went to school in New York City and lived in Manhattan for a dozen years. And he spent three years at the Iowa Writers' Workshop in Iowa City, both as a student and a teacher. Like all the Southerners I talked to, Alan had stories about Northerners being surprised he was intelligent and articulate. But also, of course, there's the race thing. And let's just get this out of the way. Nobody you'll hear in this piece is trying to minimize or excuse the racial sins of white Southerners, past or present. Here's Alan. I, I once heard uh, the great Mississippi writer Eudora Welty ask why so many great writers came from Mississippi, and she paused in her amazing ladylike way and said, "Maybe it's because we have so much to explain." <laughs> And I think as Southerners, uh, we have gone to calisthenic school explaining ourselves. Uh, If you can come to terms with how the money was made in your own family uh, over six generations, you've pretty much passed the course in world history and are ready to be tried. What drives my Southern friends nuts about white Northerners is not the references to Southern guilt, per se. It's the flip side, the implied Yankee innocence, and the presumption that Northerners are in a position to educate the clueless, racist Southerner. My friend and colleague Alexa Dilworth also spent time in Iowa City as a poetry student at the Writers' Workshop in the late 1980s. One thing that happened when I was there is the movie Mississippi Burning came out. I think that was my first year there. Alexa grew up in northern Virginia, spent summers with relatives in northern Florida, and went to undergrad and grad school at the University of Florida in Gainesville. She's lived in North Carolina for more than 25 years. Yes, I think of myself as a southerner. So back to her story about being a student in Iowa City when a certain blockbuster film came out. Her fellow students were from all over, but were mostly non-Southerners. A number of people came up to me and said, hey, this, this movie is showing downtown at the Englert. It's called Mississippi Burning. I think you might want to go see it. And the first couple of times, I was just, whoa, thanks for the movie tip. Third, fourth time, like, why do people keep asking me if I've seen Mississippi Burning, if I have the intention of going? About the fifth time, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, Everyone thinks I need to go see Mississippi Burning because I can't possibly know about Freedom Summer or civil rights workers in the South or I, I wouldn't know about any of this. And I realized that they, they were really hoping that I'd get edified. You know, 
you really need to get over there and maybe learn something about where you're from. It, it really stuck in my craw, I have to say. I just couldn't believe it. Tomorrow is Super Bowl 51, and it's the New England Patriots versus the Atlanta Falcons. Earlier this year, Michael Che on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update upset some people in Boston with this remark. For three hours, I just don't want to talk about any social issues or politics. I just want to relax, turn my brain off, and watch the blackest city in America beat the most racist city I've ever been to. Boston was the most segregated place I'd ever lived. Liz Phillips is another friend and colleague. She grew up in Chapel Hill and now lives here in Durham. She spent a dozen years in Boston and loved it in many ways. But about that segregation. I mean, where people lived, where people shopped, sporting events. Just a whole lot less of people literally being in the same space together across racial lines, right? Yes. A whole lot less than you find here. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble, John. No, I'm not. I'm going to get us all in trouble if I can. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yet, Liz says when Bostonians learned that she was from North Carolina... There was often a... Hmm. Hmm. What is my face doing? Oh, you don't say. Hmm. Or sometimes even, wow. I was at a party one time, chatting with somebody I'd never met, and, you know, in the course of it, told them that I was from North Carolina. And uh, this person said, wow, what's that like? And I, you know, I felt like I knew where this was going, but I said, well, what's what like? You know, living in the South, all that race stuff. And, you know, I can't even remember what I, what I said. I'm, you know, I didn't say anything profound, like the weight of history is heavy and painful and always present. You know, the race stuff. As if the race stuff isn't everywhere in every town, every city, every region, every state. It was kind of breathtaking. That's good, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I wonder if you've heard this, and I think I've heard it said mostly by, by white Southerners, but here's how it goes, I just want to get your reaction. Here I'm talking with Shannon Sullivan. She's a philosophy professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. One of her books is called Revealing Whiteness, The Unconscious Habits of White Privilege. I told her about an expression I've heard from white Southern friends. Northerners, meaning Northern whites, Northern whites love the race but hate the people. Southern whites hate the race but love the people. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I think it, in, a, in a funny way that captures some of the differences the other way, one of them goes kind of an African-American folk saying, right, um, in the North, they don't care how high you get, okay, they being the white people. So in the North, they don't care how high you get as long as you don't get too close. And in the South, they don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high. <laughs> so different yeah. ways of managing 
social distances, physical distances. So it happens in different ways. There's been, a, you know, there's a long history of this different forms of etiquette, um, you know, manners, stat- habits, and styles. Those styles are different, but they have a way of supporting still a society that privileges and, and advantages white people. In her newest book, Good White People, Sullivan explores strategies that some white folk use to distance ourselves from white racism. Looking into the ways in which good white people set up uh, differences that often are class differences. There are also regional differences between the white people who are supposedly not racist. Those are the good ones. And a lot of dumping that goes on against the bad white people. Sullivan says these strategies are usually unconscious and well-intended. They come from an impulse to not participate in racism. But that doesn't make them helpful. One of the strategies is colorblindness, insisting I don't see race. It's almost like a pride in being completely clueless about the world in which we live as white people if we can't see how our own whiteness, along with other races, is operating in it. And that actually allows uh, allows white supremacy and the other things I've been talking about to hum along quite happily and unchallenged. If you can't see race, then how in the heck are you going to see racism? And then there's the well-worn white trash strategy, looking down on poorer white people as the problem, the real racists. This can overlap with northern superiority toward southerners, who are often stereotyped as lower class and poorly educated whether they are or not. Sullivan thinks sometimes working class and southern white folks are responding to this kind of condescension when they hurl back the words politically correct. And they're looking at the good middle-class white people saying, you know what, you don't believe this stuff you're saying any more than the rest of us. Your so-called anti-racism is a stick that you're using to beat us other white people down with. You're not any better than the rest of us. You just have a certain kind of language that you're using that draws class distinctions between the good white people and the bad white people. Um, now, I, I mean, in the- At this point in the conversation, Shannon gets uncomfortable, worried she'll be misunderstood. God, that term politically correct is just so thorny there. Um, She wants to make clear she's not just agreeing with people who throw the phrase around. People are right to use inoffensive language instead of racial slurs. But she thinks there's an aspect of the you're just being PC accusation that deserves to be taken seriously. That is, the implied skepticism that the folks claiming good white people status are really so terribly woke or innocent. Here again, she's paraphrasing what she thinks the so-called bad white people are often feeling. These words you're using, these so-called new and improved words, are just papering over the same old habits of white privilege and habits of white domination that you say you're criticizing. Well, when we got to Wisconsin, people heard our accent. They, They heard the South in our voices and... Tim Tyson, the guy who played Civil War as a child in North Carolina, spent a decade in Madison from the mid-1990s until 2005. He taught in the Afro-American Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin. Tim is a civil rights historian and author of the best-selling books, Blood Done Sign My Name, about a racial murder in his hometown in North Carolina, and his latest, The Blood of Emmett Till. 
Since he moved back home to the South, Tim spends much of his time advising the North Carolina NAACP. He pretty much devotes his life to understanding and fighting racism. So let's just say when Tim and his family first moved to Wisconsin and he heard people talk about race in the way Midwesterners do, he heard them loud and clear. When people heard our accent, they would uh, ask us where we were from and we'd tell them and they would say, well, how do you like it here? And we liked it very much. So, and also we were being polite. So, so we went, we began to tell them all the things that we really liked about Wisconsin so far. And uh, when they, you know, people liked that for a little while, but then when they'd gotten all they wanted, they wanted to interrupt us and they always said the same thing. Well, it's not perfect. They wanted us to know that we had not dropped into paradise. And they would say, well, you know, we've got these people from Chicago coming up here to get on the welfare. And they would explain, you know, I think Wisconsin's welfare payments were $18 a month more than Illinois or something. And they had this idea that their lavish generosity and, and the dependent and uh, lazy African Americans were flooding over the border into Wisconsin to get on the welfare. And this was almost universal. People told us this story over and over again. Those people from Chicago, which was what they said instead of racial epithets, but... What Tim's describing is familiar to me because the same debate took place next door in Minnesota in the 1990s. In fact, I covered the story of black migration to Minneapolis for NPR in 1997. In a metropolitan area that's still 90% white and that views its quality of life as a fragile treasure, those In both states, a lot of white folks got alarmed by a relatively modest influx of lower-income black folk. This is tape of Barbara Carlson, then a radio talk show host and candidate for mayor of Minneapolis. This is a city very close to under siege. It doesn't make any difference where they are from, if they are poor, but it is a poverty issue, and very, very often it's an African-American issue. Former Minneapolis in fact, the evidence suggested most of those African-Americans were moving in search of the plentiful jobs and safer neighborhoods in Wisconsin and Minnesota. I interviewed Ed Briggs at the time. He'd moved up from the depressed steel town Gary, Indiana, and was making sandwiches at a subway shop in downtown Minneapolis. If you want something, Minnesota is a place to get it because I came up here on a Monday. I got here on Monday night, to be exact. At 10 o'clock, I got here, okay? And that Thursday morning at 8 o'clock, I had two jobs. It had nothing to do with uh, the extra 18 or $11 a month or whatever it was. You know, there were uh, parents coming from uh, Chicago and Gary, Indiana, and places like that looking for decent schools for their kids and a place you know, a place out of the difficulties of life in the inner city in America. So there was some, but we're still talking about a small amount of the local population, 4%, 5%. But if you get out from Madison, they think Madison is wildly integrated, overrun with black people, among other things. When it's, you know, it's really very white place. <laughs> Another long-running news story that fascinated Tim during his time up north was a racially loaded fishing dispute. 
bands of Ojibwe Indians were asserting their right to fish in their traditional way, using spears, on territory they'd given up long before in northern Wisconsin. Spearfishing isn't permitted if you're not Ojibwe, but the tribe secured those rights in 19th century treaties. Still, some white sports fishermen were furious. They put on camouflage and blaze orange clothing and formed crowds on the edges of lakes where the Ojibwe were fishing. And it, there was a, all manner of venom, and the scenes that were being shown on the television news were very angry scenes that frightened me and reminded me of some of the the brutal moments in the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Years ago, the protesters scream racial slurs at the spearfishers. Sometimes, they throw rocks or shoot ball bearings from slingshots. This is from an NPR report in the early 90s. Now, we're building them houses, we're paying for their education, we're giving them food stamps for their own welfare. Their bums don't need our fish and our deer and our trees. And then they can let them live. timber nigger! You've got police protection tonight, boy! And I could see that, that the, the struggle over fishing rights wasn't really about fish, you know. That there was something, it was about the other. During his time at the University of Wisconsin, Tim would sometimes get invited to give talks off campus, at churches, museums, community colleges. But the frustrating thing about being in the Midwest and getting off campus and talking as a white Southerner talking about the Civil Rights Movement is whatever I said, the only thing people could hear was, one, things sure were awful down South, weren't they? Two, isn't it great that you can be here with us, that you're now in the land of enlightenment? And that was uh, very amusing to me. But, uh, but it was also frustrating because I couldn't really, uh, it wasn't doing any good. They didn't learn a thing from, from listening to me talk about the Civil Rights Movement. But see, the South becomes the, the bearer of the bad stuff. So all things bad are projected onto the South, and then that's not us, so we're clean. All of us in this country are answering daily, if we're paying any kind of attention, to the sins of the fathers and the grandfathers that are visited, as the Bible says, under the second and third generation. The writer Alan Gerganis says white folks who feel innocent because they're not Southern should remember the rest of the country is just as much America as the South is. And Alan says the European who, quote-unquote, discovered the place, set the tone for America as a whole right from the start. Columbus is a curious figure. I mean, the more you read from his journals, the clearer it becomes that he was a mercantile agent. He was literally the agent of, of Ferdinand and Isabella. He got 10% of everything that would be made in this nation, which is why, of course, he wanted gold first and foremost. And instead of taking gold back on that first voyage, return on the investment, he couldn't really find enough. So he took people back. 
and he admitted that they had been extremely generous to him. Uh, the first day, the first sighting, in Columbus's journals, he says, they approached us in the water carrying flowers, fruit, parrots, and certain dried leaves, meaning tobacco. And he handed them his sword to demonstrate his power, and they were fascinated by the color of the metal, and they ran their hands along the blade edge and cut themselves. And his immediate thought on that first day was of selling them into slavery. There seemed to have been no wonder in him, no gratitude. It was immediately cash and carry. And, and I think that that's a legacy that is born out today. It's the air we breathe. So I think that the responsibility is shared and the legacy is so much more nuanced and compromised than most people would prefer to think. Hello. So how's it going, Chenjirai? Pretty good, man. You know, another day in paradise. <laughs> yes. Well, and you, uh, you live in the deep south now. You live in Clemson, South Carolina, where you teach. And um, remind me, where where else have you lived in the country, and where'd you grow up? I grew up. You know, I was born in New York and Harlem. I grew up mostly in upstate New York, uh, Baltimore, and New Jersey. But I've also lived in Chicago and Los Angeles and like Philadelphia. So, you know, kind of all over the place. Dr. Chenjirai Kumanika, media scholar, artist, and organizer. Our conversations are a frequent feature of the Seeing White series. And what about all this? What do you notice about, does it, does it more or less ring true for you? Some of the stuff we, that we, that you heard in the piece from, uh, and we heard a lot from white Southerners kind of venting, <laughs> but did this kind of general picture ring true for you about some of the differences? And some of the similarities, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to really put language on it. It's like, you know, a lot of my friends and white people in the North have the right politics, but, you know, there is kind of like a weird homogeneity to the spaces that they move in and in the south you know on the other hand you got people who will constantly invite you to dinner invite you to church but they also might vote against the voting rights act you know mm -hmm. so, so it's so right. you know it's and it's and everybody doesn't fit in those categories clearly but but like the dynamic that you're talking about uh with shannon sullivan i'm very much familiar with it this idea that Northern white people kind of look down on Southern whites and assume that they're they're the only problem when it comes to race. I mean, I just have like friends up north who would just be like, you know, they'll like they'll 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 talk they'll like worry about me like they've never seen racism. Like, oh my God, what's it like down there? You're in Clemson. Oh man, we've got to get you up here. You know, and I'm just <laughs> like, we got to get you out of there. And I'm like, out of there to where? Like, what? Like, 
Right. The, like there's no right. problems where you are. <laughs> so Chenjerai, my um, my great 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 grandfather was a captain in the Union Army. I'm very 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 proud to say. In fact, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, and uh, I'll, I'll bring some woke biscuits for your family to share. As as a result, well, that's cool. <laughs> Right, so so I'm absolved for all time of all considerations about, and I'm joking, of course, but in fact, I I do hear this kind of thing, um, Me too. from white folks in the north, which is you know this wanting a merit badge really for the whole, almost the whole country sometimes, but you know at least every everybody who wasn't in the eleven Confederate states that this tremendous sacrifice was made to free the enslaved black people between 1861 and 1865. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let me just say war is real and, you know, I understand people lost lost their lives, so I don't I don't want to, you know, dishonor people who 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 lost yeah. their lives fighting for the right thing. But I think that way of looking at things is really problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it sort of doesn't recognize all the ways that black people contributed to our own liberation, both on mm -hmm. and off the battlefield. But mm -hmm. the other thing I think is that the evidence, like when you really look at what was going on at that time, you look at the, ec the economic issues and the reasons for going to war and the attitudes of a lot of people in the North, the evidence just doesn't really support the idea that everybody's primary interest was freeing enslaved black people. Well, and even Lincoln himself, of course, there's the really famous quote that he, uh, it was from a letter that he wrote during the war uh, to Horace Greeley, the abolitionist who was kind of uh, chiding him, right, for not doing more, more rapidly to free the slaves. And he wrote in this open letter in the newspaper in 1862, he said, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save this Union. So he says absolutely clearly what his first priority was, and it wasn't freeing the slaves. Yeah, so I he mean, was a yeah he yeah. was a critic of slavery, but he wasn't a, a you know as historians will say he was not an abolitionist. He, um, yeah, and he and wasn't actively fighting to, to to tear down slavery. That's right, and in fact, you know you have the Fugitive Slave Act that gets passed in 1850, which gives you know Southerners, you know slave owners, the right to go into the North and retrieve. They're slaves, people who had endured the the horror of escaping, you know, from that Holocaust. And so you think, OK, well, what's Lincoln's position on this? Right. When they try to pass that law. Right. Well, Lincoln, once the law is passed, Lincoln doesn't really oppose it. Right. Lincoln, the great liberator, is sort of supportive of the Fugitive Slave Act. He cha he, he does. He makes some effort to make sure that people who were freed, legally freed blacks, wouldn't be called back into slavery, but that effort doesn't really work. And then, you know, ultimately Lincoln urges congressional Republicans to abandon all opposition, real or apparent, to the Fugitive Slave Act. So that's deep to me. Yeah. And, you know, I think Lincoln, of course, literally thousands of books have been written about him 
and he's a complicated guy, and it seems that he evolved. And I think there was there. It's pretty clear that to some degree, and at some times, he was genuinely morally troubled by slavery. Um, but yes, I, I I think at the very least, it's I think we have to acknowledge that he was not in a kind of straightforward way a moral crusader who was primarily out to uh, to save the enslaved black people. It's just just not accurate. And I think that those abolitionist politics are, are tricky, right? And those politics between the North and South are complicated even now, right? Because it's part of offloading racism onto the Southern bigot, right? Is also about mm-hmm. making racism into primarily psychological phenomena. So the first step is you make it seem like all the bigotry and, you know, bad racial attitudes are in the South. And of course, as you've illustrated already, that's just not even close to true. But then you're also ignoring the North's deep investment in the Southern economy and their connection to all these other forms of white supremacy that ultimately bind the North and South very closely together in this web of racial capitalism. Right. So the cotton, yeah, the cotton was grown in the South uh, because that's where the weather was right to grow cotton. But the entire country was tied up in that in that economy. And in, and in fact, the cotton trade continued all the way through the Civil War, right? Because the North couldn't do without cotton. And some, right. some have argued that the war could have ended sooner if the North had been willing to actually cut off that, that the Southern cotton economy, but it didn't want to do that. That's right. And there's all these ways that you see Northern business people invested in the Southern economy. Right. In January of 1861, Eric Fono talks about how 30 businessmen from you know New York came down to these. They took a train to Washington, D.C., and they had this petition signed by 40,000 other businessmen that outlined a whole bunch of concessions the North was going to make to the South, including they were going to accept the Dred Scott decision. Right. And it wasn't just the business sector either. Right. You have like Mayor Fernando Wood, who, you know, before the Civil War basically says that rather than join the union effort, New York City should secede. So when you have the mayor mayor of New York is saying that New York City should secede rather than to support the union effort. So I just don't know how that really, I mean, what does that do to this narrative of like the whole North opposed to slavery? And speaking of New York, um, you know, you had the draft riots in 1863 in which thousands of mostly Irish working class men protested. It started out as a protest against the draft and then it turned into a race riot and they attacked black people and killed something like 120 black people in a race riot. Um, And that was tied to frustration with having to go fight this war. That's a lot different than like New Yorkers who are just really excited to go fight, you know, against slavery, right? Right, exactly. And if we wanted to, you know, continue the the stroll through American history, um, you know, after the Civil War, the South crushes Reconstruction, and the North, uh, you know, really stands by. And uh, and then you have a hundred years of Jim Crow segregation, and the North stands by, really, until the Southern Civil Rights Movement, which was, of course, led by black people. And at that point, 
you know, there's something of an awakening of the conscience of some of some people across the country. I don't want to minimize that. But um, yeah, to to have a sense now in 2017 that you can look back at the sweep of American history and say, wow, we, those of us who live outside the 11 Confederate states, we've really been principled anti-racists all these, uh, all these years. Um, boy, it just really doesn't stand up too well, does it? That's right. And I mean, the things you're pointing out, the attack on Reconstruction was systematic, happened throughout the United States and all the way until today, you know, you talk about redlining and housing discrimination Mm -hmm. that was systematic and instituted by the federal government and was also throughout the United States. Right. Like this wasn't about, you know, bigots who don't get it in the South. Yeah. And another thing, another thing I want to point out is like today in American towns and cities, they're still deeply segregated, right? And that's the case everywhere, not just in the South. In fact, if you look at the most segregated cities in the country, a a lot of them are in the North, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, New York, Cleveland, St. Louis, and in Boston. So it's everywhere, but it's definitely in those Northern cities too, right now. And I, you know, so I, you know, as we talk about this, I, it, what comes to mind again is that thing Tim Tyson said, the, the civil rights historian from North Carolina who talked about the time he spent in Wisconsin. And he said that, you know, when he gave talks about the civil rights movement in the South, people didn't learn anything. And that's because they, they didn't think that he was talking about them and their place. And I can vouch for that. You know, that's where this piece comes from. This is all very familiar to me as someone who yeah. grew up in Minnesota and lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul for many years, where there was a kind of pretty pervasive sense that we're pretty enlightened here. We're not in the racist part of the country. Um, and, you know, there was, I don't want to caricature people either. There was clearly people who had, who were, you know, they had the whole spectrum of, of people's awareness, right? But I would say this kind of the standard issue sensibility was that we don't have, we don't have a need for any kind of deep, transformation not like those people in you know Birmingham or Charleston or Jackson Mississippi who have so much more to answer for and so much so much work to do I know man it's you know I just look at the map of the last election right and I mean Trump was saying some horrible and very explicit things about people of color and his policies are now starting to back them up And if you just look at that election map, right, I mean, there's a lot of red on there all over the place. Now, you know, it's it's like so I'm not saying everybody who voted for Trump is racist. But what I am saying is those people up there in Long Island and New Jersey and Pennsylvania that voted for him, they got a lot in common with the people down here that they call them rednecks. (laughs) Right. Well, and speaking of Donald Trump, the man himself I don't think he's from uh I don't think he's from Hattiesburg, is he? Nah. He's from New York. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks as always to Chenjerai Kumanika and our editor on the series, Loretta Williams. Keep listening. We're gonna keep on seeing white. 
I so appreciate those ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thank you. As more and more of you do those and subscribe to the show, the app puts us in front of more eyeballs. That's how it works, and it's why I keep making this plaintiff request. Our website is seenonradio.org. There you can find links to the books that are informing these recent episodes. Like our page on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, at SceneOnRadio. Music this time by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, and Lucas Bewin. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.